How do I know if I really have faith? That may sound like a trite question to you this morning, but it is one of the most important ones that we can ask. Most people I know at some point or the other have asked themselves that question, do I really have faith? It's a question that's worth asking for many reasons. One is that faith today is used in a very different way than the way the Bible speaks about faith. Often in the world today, you'll uh, hear that faith is something that is more like blind belief and something that is usually unreasonable. You might hear someone say, you just need to have faith that things will get better. Faith in that sense is often just a blind hope on something that perhaps you wish to be the case in spite of evidence to the contrary. That's not how the Bible speaks of faith at all. Biblical faith, faith involves three things. It involves an understanding of certain content. Faith doesn't mean that we close our eyes and shut off our minds. It first involves comprehension. Secondly, it involves assent. I once had a New Testament professor in my undergraduate studies who was an atheist. You see, he understood the content of the New Testament, but he didn't assent to it. Real faith involves both understanding the claims of the Bible and believing that they're true. But faith doesn't stop there. The book of James says that even the devil himself has those first two elements of faith. The devil knows God. He believes that God exists. He knows that God is the Lord of all, and he hates it. He refuses to do this final element of faith, and that is to entrust himself to God. Real faith always involves more than mere intellectual knowledge. It involves an act of the will. It involves trusting him. And this trust component of faith, it has a certain tenacity to it. It involves striving, grabbing onto something, and clinging to it with all that you are. And it's this final element of faith, this tenacious trust that I want to draw your attention to this morning. How do I know that I have really trusted in Jesus Christ? Well, both the gospel lesson that we heard from Luke and our lesson in Genesis give us great pictures of what real faith looks like. In Luke, Jesus gives us a parable, but in Genesis, we get a real-life account, a real-life account of real faith. Genesis 32, Jacob's life is forever changed. It's a crossroads in his life because for the first time, he finally begins to trust in the Lord. So turn with me to that lesson of Genesis 32 and let's look at Jacob for three marks of an authentic, tenacious faith. We pick up the story of Jacob in the middle of things. Jacob is the son of Isaac and Rebekah, the grandson of Abraham and Sarah. From Genesis 12 on, the story of Genesis zooms in on the life of this one man, Abraham. That's because God blessed this ordinary man, Abraham, and promised to bless the nations through him. And the story of, of Genesis, it's all quite thrilling, actually, because Abraham's family, as it turns out, is just as filled with drama and just as stubborn as your family and mine. You really don't need 
a reality TV show when you have the book of Genesis. I commend the whole book to you, but especially the story of Jacob in chapters 25 through 37. In Genesis 25, we learn that Jacob is a twin. His mother, Rebekah, conceives, and we are told that even in her womb, the children struggled together within her. It was a foreboding sign of how things would go between these two brothers outside of the womb. The older brother, he comes out first, and he's covered in red hair, and so they name him Esau, which means hairy. But then Jacob comes out literally grabbing at the heel of his brother Esau. So they give him this ominous name, Jacob, which means cheater or trickster, one who grabs at the heel. And Jacob is aptly named because he lied and cheated his brother Esau out of his birthright and blessing, which we'll come back to in a little bit. He cheats his brother and then he flees for his life, goes to a foreign land. And over the years in this foreign land, he prospers. He amasses a ton of wealth and livestock and possessions and family. And then in Genesis 32, in our passage today, he's returning home with all of it. And our passage begins in verse 3 with Jacob sending out messengers to his brother Esau to see how things are these many years later. Jacob is smart enough to know that time doesn't heal all wounds. So listen to what Jacob tells his messengers to say in verse 4. Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, female servants, and I have sent to tell my Lord, that's you, Esau, in order that I may find favor in your sight. Despite Jacob's flattery, the messengers return in verse 6 with this ominous message. We came to your brother, Esau, and he's coming to meet you, and there are 400 men with him. And panic sets in for Jacob. No amount of money or flattering words can make Esau forget what Jacob had done earlier. And now Esau's coming after him with an army. But Jacob develops a plan. Jacob always has a plan. He does three things. He sends Esau a lavish present, over 500 livestock that would have been an exorbitant amount of money today, uh, and, and as a peace, it's a peace offering trying to assuage his brother Esau's wrath. Secondly, he divides the rest that he has into two camps so that if Esau strikes one of them, Jacob can get away with the rest. And finally, in verse 22, at nightfall, Jacob sends over his family and his children, and his servants across this stream called the Jabbok. And there he is left all alone. And that is where Jacob has this encounter with God face to face. And it's the first thing that I want you to see about a real tenacious faith. A real faith is one that has encountered God personally. It's been said that your character is what you do when no one is watching. Well, your real faith is what you believe when you are all alone. Over the years, I've met people whose faith is so tied to others, be it family or friends, that when they're separated from these folks, they tend to have little or no interest in Christianity anymore. 
Of course, if you ask them if they were a Christian, they'd say, of course, yes, my whole family is, or I was, I was baptized here, I, I, I went to this church as a child, or that church. For many, faith is a familial, or a, or a social, or an ethnic, or a cultural thing, but it's not a personal thing. But God does not ultimately deal with people on the basis of their family or their friends' faith. He deals with them on their own individual faith, their personal faith. Jacob had come from a religious family. He'd been playing around a bit with religion for some time. He was involved in the life of God's people, but it was all external to him. He had not encountered God personally, and now he meets him alone. We live in a day where people are tremendously afraid of being alone. We are distracted and preoccupied with a million things. Our lives have a frenetic activity uh, and a frenetic pace, and the devil, I think, is quite pleased to keep it that way. Because he knows that when we are alone, when all the people and all the things that distract us are finally stripped away, that's when God will come to meet us. Faith is personal because it is individual. Don't hear me wrong, relationships are important. The church is important in the Christian life. After all, God saves us and brings us into a family. He brings us into the family of faith. But I want you to see this morning that God does this with individuals. It's not on the basis of anyone else's faith. It's on the basis of your own soul. Faith is personal because it is individual, but it's personal also in a sense because it disrupts our lives. It was Lord Melbourne, who was Queen Victoria's prime minister, who said, things are coming to a pretty pass when religion is allowed to invade the private life. But that's just it. Real faith always intervenes, invades the private life. People have always used religion or spirituality or prayer as a way to to find help, to get more peace in their life. They want to become centered or, or more mindful. They want to have an inner calm. But look at what a real encounter with God looks like in verse 24. God comes in the middle of the night and he jumps Jacob. He comes and he knocks him off balance. He wrestles him to the ground and he disrupts him. That is how you know your faith is real. It is something that personally relates to the living God. You see, when your faith never challenges you, when it never pushes back on you, your faith is not in God, it's actually in yourself. But when God pushes back on you, when you start wrestling with him, when you start to feel that you can no longer keep living the way that you once did, that's when you know religion has invaded your private life, that's when you know you've encountered the living God, and that's when faith has gotten personal. Has it gotten personal for you? Has God intruded your life? Have you met him alone, individually, personally? A real tenacious faith is a personal faith, but a second mark of a real tenacious faith is that it clings to the real source of blessing. You see, real faith doesn't just look to God for information or inspiration. It looks to him for blessing, and that's critical. Jacob's entire life could be summed up as a search 
for blessing. I mentioned that Jacob's name literally means deceiver or cheater, and the most famous instance of that in his own life was when it came to his father Isaac's blessing. You see, in that culture, the firstborn son got the lion's share of the inheritance, and though they were born just minutes apart, Esau was the firstborn. That meant he would receive the blessing by birthright. So when Isaac is mostly blind and at death's door, the time has come for the father to bless the firstborn son. But Jacob has a plan. He disguises himself as his brother. He goes into his dying father. He lies about being Esau, and then he rushes out right before Esau comes in for the blessing. The whole scene is a bit ridiculous to us today, and it was to an extent. Isaac could have rescinded that blessing the moment he found out it was all a ruse, and Jacob would have known that. So why in the world does Jacob go through the the trouble of dressing up and going through this disguise just to get a blessing that Isaac could have given right back to Esau? Why does he do that? The text, it doesn't say, but we do know this. Isaac loved Esau more than Jacob. And that is absolutely crushing for any child to grow up knowing. When Jacob wanted more than anything in the world, What he wanted was to hear his father's blessing of love. Even under false pretenses, Jacob wanted to hear his father tell him, I love you and I delight in you. And truth be told, every single one of us can relate to Jacob, even if we have a great father. You see, every single one of us needs someone or something from the outside to come to us and assure us that we are loved that we are worthy, that we are valuable. C.S. Lewis put his finger on what's really going on in Jacob's heart, what's going on in all of our hearts. In his book, Mere Christianity, he writes, the longings which arise in us when we first fall in love, or first think of traveling to some foreign country, or first take up some subject that excites us, These are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy. I'm not now speaking of what would be ordinarily called unsuccessful marriages or holidays or learned careers. I'm speaking of the best possible ones. There was something we grasped at in that first moment of longing which just fades away with the reality. And he goes on to say, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy. The most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Jacob longed for the love and blessing from his father, and he took it, and it wasn't enough. So he flees to a new country, and there he sees a beautiful woman, Rachel. And he thinks to himself, if I can just get Rachel, maybe she's the blessing I'm looking for. Maybe she can satisfy my heart's desire. But even after he gets Rachel, it doesn't turn out the way he thought. And Lewis says that we are all just like Jacob. Even in the best possible families, the best possible marriages, the best possible careers and experiences, when we look to them to fill the desire of our hearts, they will never satisfy even if we get them after Jacob's lifelong search 
for blessing, when he is all alone and he's at the end of his rope, this mysterious man comes in the middle of the night and he knocks him to the ground. And the one who's been struggling his whole life for blessing now struggles for his own life all night long. Jacob must have wondered, who in the world is this man? And as the sun's about to come up, he gets a couple clues. We read in verse 25, when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint. Jacob's hip is smashed, it's permanently undone, and he will walk with a limp the rest of his life. And yet all this man had to do was just touch his hip socket, and he's crippled. After going toe-to-toe all night long and prevailing with this man, a terrifying thought comes into Jacob's mind, and it's this, this man's been holding back on me. All he has to do is just touch me, and I'm undone. Who was this person with supernatural power? The second clue is when the man tells Jacob, to let me go for the day has broken. Why is he so concerned about daybreak? This is the God who said, man shall not look on my face and live. And it's in that moment that Jacob realizes that he has been struggling all night long with God. And his life is forever changed. In verse 26 he cries, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And when he says that, it's as if he's saying, I don't care if I see you and die. I don't care if I lose my life because you have the blessing I've been looking for. You have the real approval that I've been looking for in the face of my father, Isaac. You have the real beauty that I've been looking for in the face of Rachel. The blessing wasn't in my family or in my success or in my wealth. It wasn't in my possessions. It's you. You're the blessing. So I won't let you go, no matter what happens? Jacob's lifelong struggle for blessing had been directed in the wrong place. And so there, with his hip out of joint, all of Jacob's tenacity is finally redirected to the source that will ultimately satisfy his heart's desire. And he clings on to God with all that he has left. Friends, don't you realize it's, it's possible to be just like Jacob, to be like the way he was before this encounter, to believe in God all your life, to, to pray to him, to seek to obey him, and yet still miss the blessing of God in your life. You see, people often use God as a means to an end, but God is the end. He is the blessing. Have you held on to him for true blessing? That's the second mark of real faith. Real faith is is personal, and real faith clings to the true source of blessing. And lastly, real faith simultaneously limps and dances. Jacob's limp is an incredible symbol. It's an outward and visible sign of an inner spiritual weakness. Let me ask you, have you ever wondered why God wrestled all night long with Jacob. Wouldn't have just been a lot easier if God had shown up and said, Jacob, I'm God. 
You've been looking for blessing in all the wrong places. What you're really looking for is me. Why, why doesn't he do that? Wouldn't it have saved him a lot of time and energy? No. Because we don't work that way. God knows that our self-reliance is not so easily dispelled with mere words. It's only after we have striven and struggled and wrestled with every ounce of energy we have, exhausting every single resource at our disposal, that our self-sufficiency finally surrenders and concedes defeat. It takes wrestling and crippling to purge Jacob of his self-reliance. And we finally see Jacob's weakness come out in verse 27. God said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. His father Isaac had asked him that question years before. But this time, there's no more lying. There's no more clever plans. There's no more covering up. I'm Jacob, the deceiver, the cheat. And God says to him, not anymore, not anymore. Your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. God gives him a new name. He gives all those who cling to him a new name. No longer does he call us rebels, slaves to sin, enemies of God, Listen to the sweet titles that he gives those who cling to him. Son, daughter, victorious, beloved. Verse 31 says, The sun rose upon him as he passed Peniel, limping because of his hip. If there was ever a picture to be painted, this is it. This is a picture of the Christian life. It's a picture of what real faith looks like. The sun is rising, and so too is the life of this new man. It is not Jacob, but Israel, the new man who continues on the journey. And for the rest of Israel's life, he limps. And that limp is a physical curse, but a spiritual blessing. It's an outward and visible sign of two important realities. On the one hand, the limp would forever remind him of the night that God brought him to his knees. The night when he was crippled in an instant. The night he finally confessed his moral and spiritual bankruptcy. But on the other hand, his limp would remind him of the night that he finally received the blessing he'd always been looking for. It would remind him that he had striven with God and prevailed. It would remind him that he was a new man with a new character and a new destiny. He would be forever reminded both of his weakness that resides in himself and the strength that God has given to him. Israel would be forever changed and he will be limping in his leg but dancing in his heart. In the same way, a, a Christian is someone who simultaneously is desperately weak and heroically strong. A Christian rejoices even in their sufferings and weaknesses because he knows God, because he belongs to God, 
and he knows that nothing can separate him from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. There's no circumstance so dark, so no trial that is so hard that a Christian doesn't burst out in song with joy. The Christian can sing just as we did a moment ago. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth and followed thee. No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and in him all is mine. Alive in him, my living head, and clothed in righteousness divine. The Christian has found his soul's desire in Jesus Christ. And not even death can take that away. His soul sings and dances. But on the flip side, there is no accomplishment so wonderful, so, no experience so great, no honor so excellent that a Christian ever gets over his limp. Just as the risen Jesus Christ will forever bear the scars of the cross on his hands, so too will a Christian's heart bear the scars of God's surgical work of redemption. Such marks, however, only serve to remind us of the goodness of God and the greatness of his salvation for sinners. There's not a single point in the life of the Christian where he can begin to take the credit or renounce his need for God's mercy. This is the final mark of a true, tenacious faith. It's a faith that both dances while it limps and it limps while it dances. My friends, do you have such a faith? Have you encountered God personally? Have you clung to him for blessing? Do you know something of what it is to dance and to limp simultaneously? Let us pray. Oh, Lord God, thank you that your son, Jesus Christ, is the true and better Jacob, who didn't just risk his life to procure our blessing, his blessing, but he gave it up so that we might get your blessing. I pray that those who know something of this real tenacious faith, that you would give them more of it. And for those who are here and either too scared or too disinterested to ask, I pray that you would wrestle them to the ground and that you would bless them more than they could ever imagine. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.